Welcome to When We Were Young, the podcast that is not actually a podcast, but looks and sounds enough like one that it has you all fooled. <laughs> I'm Chris, the podcast host who secretly longs to shed this icky human skin suit so he can comfortably be who he truly is deep down inside. A goopy spider with a mouth where his stomach should be. <laughs> I knew it. I'm Becky, the podcast host, most likely to rather not spend the rest of this winter tied to this fucking couch. <laughs> <laughs> And I am Seth, the host most likely to tie you down to a chair for your health and then shoot you with a flamethrower for your health. <laughs> this is all sounding very 2020. <laughs> very on point for this year. Are we talking about something else? <laughs> oh, yeah. We're just we're just shooting the shit here. We don't have any movies to cover. <laughs> In this episode of the podcast, we are not feeling like ourselves today. We are wrapping up the year 2020, a year I can safely say was unlike any other. For this most unusual holiday season, we talked briefly about cherished Yuletide classics we might want to cover. A Christmas Story, Home Alone, maybe even It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> you know, it's been a rough year, so it might be nice to come together with a heartwarming story about love and togetherness. But in the end, we decided nothing says happy holidays in 2020 like exploding dogs and erupting baboons, decapitated heads that sprout <laughs> spider legs and go skittering off into the night, human women birthing larvae. And just general blood and viscera all around. Those weren't the stories you were all told at Christmas time growing up? Well, after all, we do celebrate the mother of all body horror stories at Christmas, which is uh, Jesus Christ being nailed to the cross. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, no, that's like Easter. Christmas is his birthday. Well, you know, <laughs> Chris. It's all part of the same story. It's still body horror because she didn't have sex, right? So an intruder is in her stomach. Well, childbirth is body horror, too. Yeah. Y you know, you know all about that one. <laughs> right mm, don't get me started <laughs> that's for our other podcast <laughs> mom talk <laughs> becky's birth and corner <laughs> does it have to be just a corner can't she have a whole room <laughs> moving on <laughs> so in the true spirit of christmas we're looking at two of the gnarliest body horror classics of them all two 1980s remakes of 50s sci-fi b-movies Two films that speak to the alienation, dread, and existential horror we've been experiencing for most of this year. They would be 1982's The Thing from horror legend John Carpenter and 1986's The Fly from horror legend David Cronenberg. Now, if you would like to hear more of our body horror but are not quite ready to subscribe to Becky's Birth and Corner, <laughs> <laughs> we did share our own body horror stories in episode 17, which was about the Alien franchise, which was also very appropriate for that episode. We had mouth splinters. We had a purple ear. That's mm -hmm. right. Two purple ears. Those are mine. And a chest burster. So if you're interested in that, get yourself on over to episode 17. Yeah, go back and encounter that episode. It's worth it. <laughs> and you'll get that joke. <laughs> That is one of our best jokes. So for this episode, a question that I came up with as I was thinking about the thing was, uh, what was your experience being part of a group growing up? And what was the group that had the most impact on you? Ooh. Well, I have mentioned this um, on the podcast before. In fact, you met one of the members of my group, Chrissy. She has been a repeat guest on many of our witchy podcasts. <laughs> Her and a few others um, that I went to junior high with on Long Island, we had our little goth group, <laughs> I suppose you could say, even though not all of us were goth and I like dipped my toe in, you know, every other day into the goth side. But we were definitely like close friends and like every weekend we would hang out with each other and and that was my group. And the funny thing is, is that I didn't even, we didn't all go to the same high school. Um, we were actually were split between three high schools and usually when that happens when you're like 15 and your friends go to different high schools like that's the end of the friendship um, but not so I mean we're still I mean how many decades is it later and you know I still text them all the time I see them whenever I go back to the east coast they were known so much at my high school for seeing like my shows and stuff that at my drama dinner at the end of the year everybody that's new in the program gets like um, a superlative 
like an award and my award was Becky we're afraid of your friends (laughs) 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 because every time I was in a play and we did a lot of plays um, they would come and they were very you know stylishly gothily (laughs) dressed Um, and you could you just were like that's Becky's group (laughs) Becky had a posse and they rolled deep theatrically speaking yes they were very theatrical (laughs) even so for the drama department to be like wow (laughs) it's pretty bad when the drama department's like oh those people are out there (laughs) yeah oh and Justin that you met on the Simpsons episode he was also in it and a few others and yeah we're still very close I was very lucky to meet very uh, awesome supportive people very early in my life I love that. I love that so much. It's cool. What about you, Seth? I mean, I think I've kind of mentioned some of my posses from relative eras in my life. So many posses. So many. (laughs) I was drowning in posse. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, that was delayed. That took her a minute. (laughs) It's okay. The group that comes to mind for me and and that rings that bell of the loudest was a group, my kind of circle of friends in high school, and we were called the Foyer Kids. What? (laughs) Were you mass shooters? No. Why is that so funny to me? Uh, No, we were not mass shooters. And no, it was not funny. It was very serious, Becky. God, you guys. It was thusly named because inside the building on my high school campus that contained the main theater, there was a foyer area that just had some very long old wooden tables and chairs. It was a general use area just for hosting events and parties sometimes throughout the year. But during the rest of the year, I and my group of friends hung out there and that literally became our area and it was unofficially the official hangout spot for my big circle circle of friends. For all four years of high school, that was the place where we always knew we could meet up. Some friends were in the grade below or above me, but regardless, that was our area. Us foyer kids tended not to be the most popular kids in the whole school, but we weren't necessarily outcasts either. Some folks played sports. I was heavy into debate and quiz bowl and theater tech. So we all had our own interests, But in the foyer, we had this one place, and we could hang out between our classes. And I really valued that at the time and honor it now. And as the years went by, we would also meet up at the foyer after school and head out to friends' houses nearby. Or meet up there to drive to see movies, you know, when friends of ours started getting cars. In that circle of friends, there was... All the personal drama and big life events that you'd imagine happening to high school kids. But what was so special about that place and the friends I had there were that we all had trust for each other. And we weren't usually petty and mean with each other in the way that high school kids can be especially petty and mean. And the people who did (laughs) kind of try that try to make more interpersonal drama and conflicts happen, they would tend to disappear from the foyer after a while. (laughs) (laughs) And their bodies were never found. (laughs) (laughs) So when you asked that question, the foyer was the first thought that occurred to me. I've had circles of friends and what I call my chosen family everywhere I've lived in my life. But that time in high school was particularly tough for me in terms of feeling a sense of community and belonging. So the foyer in my high school was the first place I had and group of people I had where I always knew that I belonged. The correct answer was your group on the When We Were Young podcast. So you both (laughs) failed. No! So now I have to pick something else. I was going to pick you guys, but... Now it's embarrassing. (sighs) I've already failed. No, I'm just kidding. I had similar experiences to you guys um, in finding a group of friends who probably were also people who would consider themselves outcasts, but then you come together and form a like super team of outcasts and then and then you're a group. (laughs) A nerd Voltron, (laughs) if you will. (laughs) but mine is actually much more embarrassing i don't know it was the first one i I thought of so i'm just gonna go with it which was i was a part of something called mad hatters readers theater at the local library (laughs) 
when I was like maybe 11. You, you're saying this like we're not nerds ourselves. I know, but <laughs> I like to be the coolest nerd. And this is actually opening me up to be the nerdiest <laughs> nerd of us all. Mm, okay. <laughs> Chris, if it helps you feel better, I have never thought of you as the coolest nerd. Okay, thank you. <laughs> So this was a thing where it wasn't exactly a drama troupe because we would actually read instead of (laughs) memorize things. But we would read like poems and like little short stories or little scripts wearing different hats in character. So it was kind of like a very lazy form of drama school. (laughs) When you said reader's theater, I was just thinking about the act of reading itself. I did not take into account that you were literally describing hats. Oh, yes. There were actual hats. <laughs> there was actual allowed reading. It was a performance of sorts. And for some reason, that came out to me as like the answer to this question that I asked you. I don't know, maybe because it felt like such a... Because I'm not someone who did a lot of drama or anything. And even though I had friends growing up, you know, and I spent time with them, I also did a lot of things like writing that were very um, independent. And so this was one of the only things that I did that was creative, but also collaborative growing up. And I think that's why the fact that it like kind of merged being social and being creative together. And that's probably why it came to me as like slightly different than the friend groups that I was part of. It was pretty corny. What ages were you participating in this? I think, yeah, probably 11. So it was like, I know I outgrew it at some point because like I was sort of like, I still liked it. But then I was getting to be that age where I was like self-conscious is like, oh, this probably isn't cool. I should, I should stop. And your head grew too large for all the hats to fit anymore? It did, yes. Puberty is a bitch. Wow. <laughs> that's incredibly delightful, Chris. It is like, that is that is especially delightful to me. I, I love this. There you go. You can, you know, bring that up um, whenever you want to make me feel like a child. <laughs> Chris, do you have photos? Do you have photo evidence of this, Chris? If there is such evidence, I will make sure it is destroyed. <laughs> I'm not going to make fun of you, but I am going to give you a hat for your birthday from here until the end. Yes, please. <laughs> so. Becky, if I can help in any way in selecting the hat, <laughs> please let me know. <laughs> it's intermission time. The show starts in 10 minutes. Yes, folks, it's intermission time. So how about taking a break? Get out and stretch a little and relax before the show begins again. And why not make it refreshment time, too? We have lots of tasty, delicious treats waiting for you at the refreshment center. There's hot popcorn, so golden good and fresh out of the popper. And all kinds of refreshing ice-cold soft drinks. Sizzling hot dogs just bursting with juicy goodness. Ice cream so smooth and delicious, you'll hanker for more. Plus... All the most popular candy bars and many other favorite treats. So why not visit the refreshment center now? Our courteous attendants are ready and waiting to serve you with a wide and wonderful variety of good things to eat and drink. So step right up and make yourself at home. Both The Thing and The Fly remakes that we're talking about in this episode are based on 50s sci-fi horror films that were part of a huge wave of films that were cheap, schlocky, and often pretty bizarre that became popular in that decade and paved the way not just for these particular films that we're talking about today, but pretty much for the entire body of work of both John Carpenter and David Cronenberg, I'd say. They're, They're all very rooted in this kind of horror. So I thought we'd talk a little bit about B-movies in general to get a sense of where they came from, and because they actually have a pretty interesting connection to what's happening in movie-going today, which is quite a thing to, to discuss and to ponder what will happen to movies and if if movies will remain. <laughs> I, I didn't follow that last <laughs> Chris is asking, will movies? <laughs> yes. And we're going to find the answer to that. That was what I was going for. And then and then I just was sort of hanging in there. And so more words were needed. Prior to the 1950s, movies were often shown in double features. They used to be sold to theaters as a block. The origin of the term B-movie applies to the movie that was at the bottom half of the bill, usually cheaper and less appealing and often much shorter, some even under an hour. Oh, I honestly didn't know that's where that... Well, that's what I'm here with with my facts. That's what I'm here for. Well, thank you. Anytime. And by anytime, I mean once a month when we do an episode. (laughs) Uh, The Supreme Court ruled against selling films in blocks in 1948. And at that same time, television was becoming a bigger deal, um, getting more people to stay home. So feature films started getting 
longer, more expensive, grander, drawing people out of their home. In the late 40s and 50s also, more Americans were moving to the suburbs and buying cars, leading to a big boom in drive-in theaters. You didn't need to get dressed up, you didn't need to get a babysitter, you didn't need to drive into a city, and you could smoke all you wanted. These were some of the appeal of drive-ins. B-movies came to describe the movies that would play at a drive-in. They only played once a day, so they made less money. So movies drive-ins show tended to be cheaper, while the more expensive movies went to traditional theaters. And the drive-in was increasingly the only place you would see a double feature. At their peak, there were over 4,000 drive-ins in the U.S., compared to about 325 at the last count, which was before this year. So (laughs) there are now many more than there were a year ago, uh, for obvious reasons. Because of the pandemic, drive-ins are now pretty much the only place where it's safe to watch a movie now in a public space. Here in LA and many other places, they're the only theaters that are open. So I just wanted to check in with you guys. Like, Have you guys gone to any drive-ins or are you interested in going to drive-ins now while we can't go to theaters? I would go see like like a movie that came out earlier this year was a was a movie called Becky, <laughs> um, and it and it was a. I would go to drive in to see myself. Myself, it's kind of got like that B movie feel, mm-hmm. mm. and I feel like that's the kind of movie I would want to go see at a drive in. We have a child, so I haven't been able to leave my house. <laughs> at all at night to like go on a date anywhere. So I actually would like to go at least once during this pandemic, but it may not happen. But I would like to see something like that, like something that feels like what you were talking about, like that feel of like, like I don't want to see Tenet at a (laughs) drive-in, you know? That's not what I... Like the the stereo is bad. You're like listening it through your radio. You're in your fucking car. Like it's not a good like cinema experience, really. You want that like, you know, uh, the novelty of it, I feel. Yeah. Becky, I, I'm really on the same page with you here. You know, we live in California, so relatively speaking, we're very spoiled. There have been many new drive-in theaters that have opened this year, and I love that they're there. I love that there are theaters where people can come together to see a movie. I deliberated whether or not to spend money on something like that. And for me, B-movies and very pulpy or crappy movies are things I love seeing, but specifically in a theater. Mm-hmm. You know, I love seeing bad movies with a crowd and like laughing at the movie together with people and just the notion of trying to like approximate that from within my own car dusty who is now old enough to vote and who hasn't been washed since question mark (laughs) (laughs) it doesn't even feel like that could round up to that experience of movie going to say nothing of like wanting to go to a drive-in to see high-end cinema (laughs) (laughs) Those drive-in tickets aren't cheap either. They're often like 30 bucks or more. So, you know, I don't knock people at all for doing it. But just for me, I haven't seen any movies scheduled to play at the drive-ins that are enough of a draw to get me to go. Yeah, I actually just did this a couple of days ago, not strictly because I was going to talk about drive-ins on the podcast, but it ended up being kind of a interesting coincidence. I saw Batman Returns, Uh, so a movie I was very, very familiar with, and yeah, I kind of (laughs) it a few times. Yeah, (laughs) I went in, you know, very open-minded just because I haven't been to a movie in public in ages. So I was Mm -hmm. like. Really like, yes, let's do this. And it was a good experience. Um, but like, it made me like remember what a drive-in is, um, which is not <laughs> yeah. a, a trip to the theater. <laughs> so I was glad it was a movie I'd already seen, you know, and I can, I can watch that movie and not feel like I'm missing anything. It's definitely not the ideal experience. Like the screen probably looks like it's about six to eight inches, you know, basically <laughs> right. of, yeah. of your view. <laughs> You know, and like cars, like people's lights come on really quick or you have to turn your lights on for something really quick or your dashboard is lighting up. So there's a lot of distractions in the experience. So, yeah, it was it was good and I'm glad I did it. But it also was something that I would not want to see a movie where I like need to see, (laughs) you know, the movie like a tenant, you know, where you actually want to see like the action. It's definitely not the best place for that. Or where you want to hang on like every single word and catch every line of dialogue. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad that they're there, you know, but it it was kind of a novelty experience and it made me be like, I'm glad I did it once. And I don't think I would do it like every weekend. Like I I would sometimes go to a movie theater like three or four times a week. I definitely would not do that in a drive-in. So it's not a, it's not a, it's a good temporary replacement, but I don't think it's going to be something that, you know, can really replace the experience. 
So in conclusion, I hope cinema and movie theaters come back someday. They will. <laughs> I really do. They will. And go see Batman Returns. It's, it's a winner. <laughs> <laughs> that Tim Burton's going places. Well, he was going downhill after that, pretty much. <laughs> Sadly. The Thing is based on the 1938 short story, Who Goes There, by John W. Campbell. It was also made into a film in 1951 called The Thing from Another World. It was produced by Howard Hawks, a legendary producer and director, who also basically shadow directed it, it sounds like. There's no agreement on how much he directed, but some people pretty much just say he directed it. It's kind of like... Mm-hmm. Steven Spielberg and Poltergeist, if you know that story, which feels like a Spielberg movie much more than it feels like a Toby Hooper movie. The story is a team of scientists in the Arctic who find a flying saucer and then thaw an alien monster. It was one of few otherworldly hits from this year, 1951, which also saw the release of When Worlds Collide and The Day the Earth Stood Still. Is it human or inhuman? Earthly or unearthly? Baffling questions, astounding questions that not even the world's greatest scientific minds can answer. Gentlemen, do you realize what we've found? A being from another world as different from us as one pole from the other. I watched it. It's it's a pretty standard monster movie. There are way too many characters in it. It's definitely not like the thing that we're going to talk about because the monster is just a monster that's after them. It's There's no sort of body impersonation thing going on. And it's definitely not as much body horror. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think a lot of movies don't have that much body horror. <laughs> Benny's was right there, Mac. I swear to God it had a hold of him. The Thing from 1982 was directed by John Carpenter, released between Escape from New York and Christine in his filmography. Wow. Okay. It was written by Bill Lancaster, who is the son of Burt Lancaster. What? I had no idea. I know. Crazy. It was shot by Dean Cundy, a legendary cinematographer who also did Halloween, who framed Roger Rabbit and Jurassic Park. So some good movies in there. And the music was by Ennio Morricone, who's also a legend, although most of his score ended up being unused because it was a little too grandiose for this movie. And Carpenter ended up going with a very spare kind of electronic kind of sounding score. It stars Kurt Russell as helicopter pilot R.J. McCready, as well as Keith David, Wilford Brimley, and Jed the Wolfdog. Jed! (laughs) What was was his name? Jed? Yep. Jed, yes. I I learned about him this time, too. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you did your research where it matters. Oh, I did. <laughs> Pup actors? Oh, I'm there. <laughs> he is an acclaimed canine thespian who you may also know from White Fang. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. He was a very good boy. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but we'll get to that scene. <laughs> Development of the remake started in the 70s with filmmakers like Toby Hooper and John Landis taking a crack at it. But it wasn't until Alien was such a monster hit in 1979 that the project started moving forward, just in time to catch the interest of John Carpenter who had just had a huge hit of his own with Halloween in 1978. John Carpenter actually showed clips from The Thing from Another World in the movie Halloween. If you remember, when Lori Strode is babysitting the kids, they're watching a scary movie, and that's what they're watching. It's kind of a fun connection. Universal, who backed the film, was hopeful that it would be a big summer hit because their other summer film, E.T., would only appeal to children. (laughs) (laughs) Hindsight. Right? (laughs) 
The movie was released on June 25th, 1982. It costs about $15 million, and it made $19.6 million. It was number eight at the box office at the same time as E.T., Blade Runner, Poltergeist, Annie, Rocky Three, Porky's, and Bambi were all in theaters. <laughs> what? Okay, that's, wow. that's pretty wild. It opened the same day as Blade Runner. Huh, wow. Bill Cosford of the Miami Herald reviewed it positively. He said, Carpenter creates an atmosphere and thing. It's a weird one, an odd landscape and clearly alien territory, but it's entertaining nonetheless. And for those who have not been to a creep show in the last couple of years, the thing has some very nasty surprises. (laughs) The New York Times' Vincent Canby had an alternate take. (laughs) He said, The thing is a foolish, depressing, overproduced movie that mixes horror with science fiction to make something that is fun as neither one thing or the other. Sometimes it looks as if it aspired to be the quintessential moron movie of the 80s, a virtually storyless feature composed of lots of laboratory-concocted special effects, with the actors merely used as props to be hacked, slashed, disemboweled, and decapitated. Finally, to be eaten and then regurgitated as, guess what, more laboratory-concocted special effects. The thing is too phony-looking to be disgusting. It qualifies only as instant junk. Wow. Wow. The director of the original 1951, The Thing from Another World, said, if you want blood, go to the slaughterhouse. All in all, it's a terrific commercial for J&B Scotch. (laughs) (laughs) I will agree with that last part, at least. You know what? I'm not surprised that this movie got some bad reviews. It's a polarizing movie experience, I think. Especially for the time, I can totally see that. I really can. It also received a Razzie nomination for Worst Score. Oh, what? What? Okay, now that I can. Wait a minute. The Razzie Committee, we are calling you out right here. That's crazy. That's awfully dumb to me. Universal had a multi-picture contract with Carpenter and instead uh, ended up buying him out. He lost the gig directing Firestarter because this movie was such a bomb. This movie was a disaster. Wow, Wow, really? Yeah. It was an (laughs) E.T. No, it was not (laughs) E.T. To our audience, um, E.T. is one of the most successful movies of all time. (laughs) If you aren't familiar. I think our audience is probably familiar with E.T., but yes, thank you for that background. You're saying E.R., right? Emergency Room, the television series? That made a lot of money, too. I guess E-letters are where the money's at. Yeah. I think it's interesting, like, this opened on the same day as Blade Runner and right after E.T., and both this and Blade Runner were huge bombs and were really derided at the time, and E.T. obviously was not. And now both this and Blade Runner are considered, you know, very well-regarded classics of sci-fi. And E.T.'s a pile of shit. (laughs) (laughs) The arc of history always bends toward justice. Yeah, we'll get into our opinions on whether we think it deserved that poor reception in a moment. But first, what was your guys' history with this movie? Did you see the thing in your childhood or later? Obviously not in 1982, because that would have been difficult. (laughs) I have no history with the thing whatsoever. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) The end. (laughs) I am an unabashed and proud John Carpenter junkie and stan and fanboy. I also believe I had at home a VHS tape with the title of the thing, you know, written in my mom's legendary sharpied handwriting, but I never once watched it. Yeah, I didn't watch it at all growing up. And in fact, The Thing was the movie of John Carpenter as I saw that got me going on my kind of mission to be a completist and seek out as many of John Carpenter's movies as I possibly could. I didn't see The Thing until about three or four years ago. One of my closest friends knew that I loved Big Trouble in Little China, knew that I loved Halloween, and I don't even think there was necessarily an occasion to watch it, but it was just like, wait, you haven't seen The Thing before? Come on. And I had kind of known it for some of those images of the monsters from it, because I think that's kind of one of the things that it's best known for. So I I watched it in one of the best kind of contexts for watching a movie like this, which is like, 
at the drive-in. <laughs> yeah, as a John Carpenter fan, like watching it with other folks who are big John Carpenter fans. Mm. And it was just an instant classic for me. It had all of the things that I kind of loved about John Carpenter, which, of course, I'll get into shortly with my thoughts about the movie now. It's kind of surprising to me that I hadn't watched it a bunch of times growing up because much like Alien and much like Predator as well, like if it had kind of gotten into my periphery, I absolutely would have loved it growing up. It was just kind of one of those things that like my friends weren't necessarily into John Carpenter and I don't know like I don't know if it's kind of a more specialized niche or something but in retrospect like it's it's a movie I should have watched growing up (laughs) what about you Chris I definitely did not see this as a child (laughs) I don't think I would have made it to adulthood if I had watched this as a kid (laughs) I would have just given up just like I'm gonna wander into the snowbank now bye yeah we've talked about Carpenter a couple times on the podcast we did Halloween and They Live both of which I think are great and I've also enjoyed The Fog and Escape from New York to a slightly lesser extent but they're still fun so yeah I have a lot of respect for John Carpenter too so I did end up checking this out I want to say like six years ago not a super long time ago the main thing I remembered about it is that it was gross (laughs) I did not remember specifics of the story I knew it was like Arctic and that was kind of it. I just did not even remember specific images, which kind of surprises me now because they're pretty memorable. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Wow, really? (laughs) No, it was just like the word gross was just in my mind. That was it. Maybe I I blocked it. Extreme gore in general is not something I like very much. In fact, I tend to avoid it um, when I can, especially when it's like gore for gore's sake. So because that was kind of all I remembered of this movie, um, going back into it, I was curious. I was not sure if this movie would be my thing yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well but seriously i i was actually curious about that myself like because both of y'all i i don't necessarily know as body horror fans you know or as fans of over the top gore yeah becky did you have any expectations of this movie since you hadn't seen it before were you thinking you would like it not like it i knew that the special effects were like you know, very good. I, I, I don't know if I knew anything specifically. I just knew people would be like, oh, the effects in the thing or the, the, the monster design in the thing. Um, but I didn't know much more than that, honestly. Mm. I, I think that I thought it would be a, a B movie in terms of like how it's made as well. Like it might be like amateurishly made. Mm. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, what did you think? We'll start with you um, going into it. What do you? What did you think actually seeing it? Um, I loved it. <laughs> wow! Yay. Yeah, I didn't know anything going in, and um, my husband didn't either, and he wasn't originally going to watch it with me because we're trapped here quarantining together. Um, but he's like, eh, "I'm going to do my own thing." But then, like, it was literally like ten minutes in, and then he looks over the TV, and then he joins me, and we both <laughs> ended the movie loving it, and. I miss practical effects so much. (laughs) Amen. That's the biggest thing that I walked away with, besides the fact that I actually thought it was really well written. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't expecting that. I thought it was just going to be like remembered for the effects and the monster design, but not the actual like performances or the writing. And I walked away being like, that was a really well-written movie. Everyone had a personality. You know, they, they had their everyone was a character like a real character that was identifiable and i didn't know it would be like all these people are trapped i actually for some reason thought this movie had like one or two characters in it but what is it like eight people yeah eight or ten yeah Yeah. something like that yeah i was really surprised by how much i liked it and 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 the character designs are great i guess you can't say that enough about just how truly gross (laughs) they they are and and really uniquely disgusting because I feel like I I can't think of any right now, but I know that I've seen movies with like monster effects and things like that. And it's always kind of like the same thing, but this was like really gross (laughs) and really inventively gross with like the spider becoming like a spider with the guy's head is upside down on like, I can't believe that I went my whole life without seeing images of these, of these creature designs. So I walked away with it being like, I'll watch, I'll watch some, some more Carpenter. Hell yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like sign me up. I'll, I'll watch it. 
Yeah, um, I was surprised that I didn't remember more from this. It's very memorable. Chris, so. <laughs> I I don't know. It was I was watching it on a smaller TV at the time. I don't I, I I don't have an excuse. I don't know what happened. I kind of like Becky had thought maybe it would be like you know great effects like that's great, but I really didn't have much of a sense of what the story would be or that there would be much of a story. Um, mm-hmm. I kind of mm. I had it, I had it more in my head as also kind of a B movie like we were talking. But I was surprised this time that the conceit of the film really worked for me, like even aside from the gore, even if those effects weren't in this movie, which, you know, they are like kind of the most striking part. But even if you didn't have them, I think the story works really well. And there's more going on. It's tapping into some very existential horror. The mood feels more novelistic to me. It's a kind of mood that isn't really captured on film very well, I feel like, Um, like a real sense of dread. Mm hmm. And it has as much in common with like, and then they were none as it does with like a Saw movie. So I appreciated it. I did appreciate the effects, which we'll talk about more. But if it had just been that, I don't think I would have really loved it. But I actually thought the story and the the filmmaking worked really well too. Like I hinted at a moment ago, I instantly loved this movie from the very first time I saw it. (laughs) (laughs) I've rewatched it at least 10 or 12 times in the past several years. Oh my God. Because to me, it's all the things I love about John Carpenter all in one place. Starting by picking up on something Becky mentioned, the setup for this movie really is a B-movie. Often with John Carpenter, the initial premise or his world for the movie could be a shoddy, like very high concept thing in another director's hands. But his ability to infuse every single character with their own personality and set a consistent atmosphere and tone really elevates all of that into just a fantastic movie. The thing in particular, I think, is such an achievement of atmosphere and tone and visual effects and even matte paintings. The detail in this movie is just absolutely insane. And even from the first moment of the movie, you know, speaking of Jed, the snow dog who's been taken over by an alien, the very first moment of this movie is Jed being chased down a mountainside and shot at by a fucking helicopter. Mm -hmm. And that helicopter then explodes. (laughs) But because this research team are so completely isolated from the whole entire world, they have no idea what's just happened outside or what has just invaded their little bubble. I think the setting also does so much for this movie is that it really feels very barren and very isolated. Like you really feel Mm -hmm. like you're at the end of the earth, which is similar to alien because they're actually literally in space, but this feels just as cut off. Like there's no one coming to help them. Like there's, there's never any question of like, Oh, like let's, you know, go to the nearest other base. Cause they try that early on and everyone's dead. So (laughs) yeah, Mm -hmm. it really feels like these people are the last people, you know, they only have each other and there's no kind of sense that like the military is going to come and rescue them. Especially rewatching this with critical eyes, it was really impressed to me from the start how well and consistently it establishes the isolation of all these people, you know, both within their environment and their isolation from each other. The research station itself already feels so lived in, and with the characters, you can already tell there are some alliances in this crew already. And also, you can tell there's some people who are already suspicious and distrustful of each other from the beginning of the movie. So, even on that level, not just the script, but Carpenter's direction and the cinematography all come together to put so much heaviness and tension and uncertainty into the air, like, surrounding every moment. And it makes it so that all these practical effects hit even harder than they otherwise would. Even now, a lot of the images in this movie, especially how the thing metamorphosizes and impersonates all the people and creatures that it's taken over, some of those images are some of the most visually horrifying things I've seen in cinema or in art. I know we'll talk more about the visual effects and creature effects, but the power of those images really only works as well as it does because the script is all there, because they did a great job casting this movie. And because all of those different elements really come together to make those images hit home. 
Yeah, this is one of the grossest movies ever. <laughs> I mean, that was one of the first notes I wrote, you know, at, at the first, you know, effects. Like, all it took was that one first scene, and then there are many more. <laughs> well, let's, let, I want to talk about what, what moments those are, because the, the moment for me that we, me and my husband both actually, like, shrieked was the stomach opening into a mouth and the hands yeah. going through. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's so many images to remember in this movie, but that was the one where I was like, holy shit. <laughs> yeah, that one is fun because it's, I mean, they're all kind of unexpected, but that one in particular is just, like, in a lot of horror movies, like, you know, like, certain things. Like, you know, if there's a big shadowy area, you know, someone's going to, you know, jump out of it right. or yeah. certain music cues will tee you up. But in this one, like literally anything can happen. So like, you're not, you're not like, Hmm, I wonder if that stomach is going to open up and <laughs> bite his hands off. Like that's not something that you're anticipating at all. Well, and not only yeah. that, Chris, but like, it's all shadow, <laughs> you know, it's like everything is shadowy. Every hallway is dark and isolated just to like emphasize your point there. It does such a good job of kind of making it seem like the spooky thing could literally be hiding in every conceivable corner. <laughs> but it almost never is. It's actually yeah. like popping out of people yeah. usually. And so it's this like extra surprise because you're expecting more conventional scares because there are like monsters and, and people who have been infected running around too. So conceivably something could come out of the shadows, but also it could just come out of a character that we thought was a normal person. So I love that the way that there's like this internal and external threat, like external, like these monsters can come in um, from anywhere. They could be any kind of monster because there's not, not that much of a rule of what they look like. Mm -hmm. um, but they could also like any of these people could also be a monster. And so it really like raises the stakes and you know, way beyond what you usually get in horror movies. There's something wrong with Blair. He's locked himself in his room and he won't answer the door. So I took one of his notebooks from the lab. Yeah. Listen. It could have imitated a million life forms on a million planets. Could change into any one of them at any time. Now it wants life forms on Earth. It's getting cold in here, Fuchs, and I haven't slept in Wait a minute, days. Mac, wait a minute. It needs to be alone and in close proximity with a life form to be absorbed. The chameleon strikes in the dark. So is Blair cracking up or what? In the Creed, there is still cellular activity in these burned remains. They're not dead yet. And I think the way you put it is perfect. Like, and it's that's another way in which they do a great job of kind of externalizing the internal conflicts between these characters. You know, because it's like really the story in this movie is one about isolation and group dynamics and mistrust and loyalty. And it's it's not just that the kind of external monsters are a constant threat, but because of the form that the monster can take, like that is also an internal threat. And even McCready isn't necessarily certain at some points whether he might have been taken over and, and the other crew members are uncertain if McCready has been taken over by the thing. And I just love the way that that kind of brings all of that drama to the surface. Yeah, I find it interesting that it seems to be separate than the host that it's in. Like, I think some of those guys didn't realize that they had been taken over by the thing. So it's not like they were hiding something like the the thing inside them was was trying to adapt to them. But like when they were testing that the blood where he was heating something to go into everybody's blood to see if if anything happened like if the if the blood tried to like survive and jump up, that means that they were infected. No one really knew what to expect. And I think that's kind of horrifying. It's not like they were just like taken over by the thing and then they're dead. Mm -hmm. They don't know if they're infected or not. We're going to draw a little bit of everybody's blood. We're going to find out who's the thing. Watching Norris in there gave me the idea that Maybe every part of him was a whole. Every little piece was an individual animal with a built-in desire to protect its own life. You see, when a man bleeds, it's just tissue. No blood from one of you things won't obey when it's attacked. It'll try and survive crawl away from a hot needle say 
Yeah, I think it's a kind of a question. It's like, do they not know or are they just acting like they don't know so well because like the thing is doing such a good job of impersonating them? Like, and I like that the like, questions like that are not answered. Like there's not, there's no set rules to this and, and, and they're kind of constantly like learning new things. That blood scene is really very suspenseful too because it mm-hmm. goes on for quite it is. a while. <laughs> and you don't know what the blood's going to do. Like for right. when he was like, okay, how is it going to like react? And when it finally does react, you're like, oh, wow. <laughs> like the blood. And it's surprising still, yeah. even though you're expecting it for this whole you yeah. know, five minute scene or something. And Clark was human, huh? Which makes you a murderer, don't it? Palmer now. This is pure nonsense. Doesn't prove a thing. I thought you'd feel that way, Gary. You were the only one that could have got to that blood. We'll do you last. There's so many horror movies like indicate what's going to happen. Like you can tell from the music or angle kind of like, oh, this is the one that's going to, you know, jump out at us. But in this movie, like it really is not like that at all. It's like it's constantly like there's no indication of what's going to happen when it's always a surprise. Yeah, and, and I think that kind of ambiguity is really best reflected in the ending of this movie, which is very classic for how super ambiguous it is. Because really, by the end of this, the character of Childs, who's played by Keith David, and McCready, played by Kurt Russell, are really the only survivors. They are pretty sure that they've killed the thing, because they basically blow up the whole research station. But literally we're all left not having any idea if the thing survives we are left not really knowing if maybe childs or mccready are the thing themselves there's an indication that keith david's character because he says he like ran out after one of the other characters who'd been turned and so it's implied that maybe he was taken over Mm -hmm. but we're left really having no idea and the ending of the movie is them just saying okay well we'll wait around and see what happens (laughs) Fire's got the temperature up all over the camp. Won't last long, though. Neither will we. How will we make it? Maybe we should. If you're worried about me... If we've got any surprises for each other... I don't think we're in much shape to do anything about it. Well, what do we do? Why don't we just wait here for a little while? See what happens. Yeah, it, this movie surprised me a lot. I expected it to be a lot more formulaic. The ending ended a little abruptly, more on like a unfinished note. Mm-hmm. Like you don't really know if they'll survive or not, or or what will happen. But you don't need to know at that point. Yeah, and I and I felt like when we first see the creature is when they put the dog in the cage um, with the other dogs, and then the other dogs who are real dogs are like, "Wait, I don't like this guy," <laughs> and they start like growling at him, and. And then, and then the monster reveals itself. And I was like, wow, like I was surprised that, you know, we get to see it so soon. And that when somebody comes and sees them, like they all grab their flamethrowers and go see the monster. <laughs> like I thought that we were going to see like a whole cage of dead dogs and no monster mm-hmm. and we would be teased with it a lot more. So that really surprised me that we saw the monster so early, even though it does have different incarnations throughout the movie, but like that we saw, you know, at least one of them so early and that pretty much everybody reacted how you know if you were a smart person how you would react you'd grab the biggest weapon you can find <laughs> and i felt like that was really interesting that there was really no dum-dums in this movie yeah <laughs> like everyone was pretty capable and smart um i think that they left each other alone a little too often <laughs> <laughs> but i generally thought that like these are like smart capable people that are you just up against something that they can't win against one thing that kind of <laughs> made me laugh about that 
sequence is that it's horrifying. It's like the first, you know, effects sequence and they all see it. And then it cuts to morning the next day. And I was like, how the fuck did they sleep? <laughs> like, <laughs> like I need a whole half hour yeah. of them sitting and being like, I'm not fucking sleeping. <laughs> but no, I agree with you. And that I think from me it's tied between spider head and dog <laughs> explode as like the two that dog really explode. got me dog explode maybe more so just because it's such a memorable image of this yeah. dog literally like coming yeah. apart and it's oh. very disgusting i didn't like seeing um, the dead dogs they made me sad same becky like also the the moment where the non-alien dog is stuck in mm-hmm. that cage with the alien and it's trying to gnaw at and tear apart the cage yeah. to get out. That was so terrifying. And it really like sold the horror of that moment so yeah. well. Even watching it like for the umpteenth time now. It was horrific. Absolutely horrific. To see, yeah. to see these poor animals, you know, trying to fight for their lives. I think it just started really well, like tone-wise. It's like, this is what you're dealing with. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's definitely dog trauma uh, in this movie. Dogs in danger? Puppies in danger? (laughs) Puppies in danger. It's our new theme. We we ran out of babies. (laughs) Fresh out of babies. (laughs) I think maybe that's why that scene strikes me the most, is because I guess you're used to seeing animals um, sometimes like die in horror movies, but you don't usually see them do this. Not usually. Nor do you see this in real life. Has has Charlie ever done this? (laughs) I mean, he could have done it when I'm not around. I don't know. And then I come home and and he could still be infected. Mm -hmm. You'll never know. I don't know. Well, you'll never look at him the same again. (laughs) Thanks. You'll never be sure. (laughs) You're welcome. I want to talk about Rob Bottin, the creature effects supervisor. I watched The Thing, Terror Takes Shape, which is a feature-length behind-the-scenes doc on the making of The Thing. Oh, cool. I want to see that. It's really interesting. Um, It's all available on YouTube, and it gave a lot of great detail and information on Rob Bottin and his work on this film. Rob Bottin was the lead creature effects supervisor on this movie, and it really can't be overstated how much John Carpenter gave him an opportunity on this movie in particular. He was 22 when he made this movie. Whoa. Rob Bottin was Rick Baker's protege, and he got his start working with the cinematographer Dean Cundy from this movie and from Halloween. And he asked Dean Cundy for an intro for John Carpenter and ended up working on makeup on The Fog. And Stan Winston, actually, who was another collaborator of John Carpenter's, came in and helped Rob Bottin. He worked on the dog effect, like the puppetry and animatronics for for the alien dog. But other than that, it was pretty much the Rob Bottin show for all of the creature designs and concepts. And it was really interesting, like, learning more about him this time. Because Rob Bottin actually came up with the whole idea that the alien would imitate every creature it's taken over. Hmm. Because that wasn't really in the original story. It definitely wasn't in the original B-movie. So in this documentary, it has a lot of interviews with John Carpenter. John Carpenter felt at some point like kind of some of the control that he was used to having was taken away from him a bit. But it really was kind of in the overall service of having such a collaborative atmosphere. And that gave John Carpenter more room to kind of focus on directing the actors, establishing the atmosphere, kind of all of those elements that I think are so winning about this movie and that really do help ground the gore and the horror of it. And it was also fascinating, like the last note I I took on it was John Carpenter specifically mentioned Alien and he loves that movie and has, uh, you know, just kind of utmost reverence for it but he really really didn't want a guy in a suit which was his like literal phrase for it and he says like Mm -hmm. in alien as as awesome as that movie is by the end of it you see that really tall guy in an alien costume (laughs) (laughs) and and so it was it was fascinating this time having watched it so many times and being such a devotee of john carpenter kind of learning how collaborative this was how 
integral these kind of elements that his collaborators brought like became to this story and again just really how successful it is because one of the stories about this movie is that it's kind of production was a disaster because they ended up like running out of money at the last minute and they they were genuinely unable to film a couple special effect shots that they initially wanted to get but it was a really pretty easy job to cut around and edit around them and really like they truly did hand build every single visual effect in this movie and I do think that that does such a great job of kind of helping it feel so apocalyptic because again, it's like, it's not just about these people kind of isolated from each other and isolated from the world. It's also about that kind of dreadful certainty that you know doom is coming <laughs> and the certainty that you're, you're pretty much not going to get saved. Mm-hmm. And really the best thing that you can possibly do, like your best case scenario is just to wait and see what comes next. <laughs> I actually rewound the end of this movie because there was the one character who disappears in the end that I thought, I I must have just missed what happened to him. (laughs) The character Knowles, and that was, yeah, one of those scenes that they ended up not being able to film for budget reasons, which, you, I mean, you can easily assume something quite terrible happened to him. Like, they Mm -hmm. have him, you know, basically like being like, who's there? You know, whatever the equivalent of that (laughs) line is. So, you know, you know, it's not good, but... (laughs) Yeah, that was one of those. Yeah, his effects are really not just great to look at and pretty convincing, even still, I would say, but also just so imaginative. Most horror movies that have gore, you know, it's a realistic body horror. You know, it's like Mm -hmm. someone's arm is chopped off or head or, you know, their intestines are split open, you know, whatever. And one of the reasons I liked watching this more is because it was inventive, you know, and it was stuff that wouldn't actually happen to you. Mm-hmm. It makes it scary. It's not just gross. Like, it's not just like, ooh, like, I wouldn't want that to happen to me. I mean, I definitely wouldn't want anything in this movie <laughs> to happen to me either. But it's a whole different level of like, you can't even imagine these things, you know? So I think, yeah, the level of imagination, you came to be like, it's not just a decapitated head, but then it sprouts legs and then it starts like wandering off. And then mm-hmm. you're like, oh no, where's that head going? <laughs> it's a whole extra level. And like another one I wanted to kind of point out in terms of the imagery, Chris, like you're saying, it's not just kind of literalistic, you know, it's not just losing a limb. It's like the alien dog creature kind of sprouts this additional head and mouth and it almost looks like it's blooming like a flower. Mm -hmm. But what's blooming are all dog teeth and dog tongues. And yeah, that alien dog image is just so indelible and incomparable. It's not really like anything you see in, even in other sci-fi movies. Like, I, th- I do think this movie is a visual achievement that easily reaches the level of the alien movies, you know, and those H.R. Geeker designs in terms of being something that is unmistakably alive, but also horrifyingly alien. I think the imagination of that is exactly as horrifying as the gore is. Yeah, and unlike Alien, this one, it's not... Like, everyone talks about the chestburster scene, because that's Mm -hmm. very gross and very imaginative. I mean, there's a lot of great scenes in Alien, but that's the one, like, kind of horrific scene that people talk about. And in this one, it's all the way through. You got constant (laughs) horror. Pick one. (laughs) Yeah, truly. It's an embarrassment of riches. (laughs) Um, So some of the materials he used for the effects included mayonnaise, creamed corn, Mm -hmm. microwaved bubble gum, and KY jelly. Microwaved bubble. Yeah, there were five gallon jugs of KY jelly all over the set of the thing. Because <laughs> all of these models had to be slicked up, you guys. They were very slimy. They were. They were like, yeah, slick and slimy. They reminded me of the xenomorphs in that respect. This movie feels like Alien. It does. It feels a lot like Alien in good ways. you know. And it yeah. doesn't feel like a ripoff, but yeah. it does definitely feel like it probably wouldn't exist without Alien having set some kind of example. Yeah. Because that's another one where it's like a team of really capable people and a monster that like is a little bit less versatile than this one, but like has surprises. Like it's a chest burster first and then it's a decoy mouth. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it has, it, has its, it has its different phases too. 
My last thing I wanted to talk about for The Thing was I love the soundtrack. Again, like I said, I've I've seen this movie a whole bunch more times, but I've also learned a lot more about John Carpenter. And one of the things that I've really come to love and appreciate so much and, and admire really so much about his work is how much of the soundtracks of his movies that John Carpenter himself has composed. Oh, wow. Like we mentioned that Ennio Morricone wrote basically a whole soundtrack suite for this movie, but really mostly it's just kind of his main themes that ended up actually being used. A lot of the pieces of music in this film are actually pieces that John Carpenter made and assembled. But I also learned from that documentary that John Carpenter and Ennio Morricone actually collaborated when Ennio Morricone was kind of making his contributions to the soundtrack. And and so I just really appreciated that and wanted to highlight it. A lot of the film directors I've admired a lot, like John Carpenter and also like David Lynch, have made really great collaborative relationships with composers over the years, but they've also contributed their own music and become musicians in their own right. And especially watching it this time, I found the soundtrack like so effective in this movie because it's almost always there. Like there is a lot of soundtrack, but it's usually not the kind of horror movie soundtrack that is beating you on the nose with what you're supposed to be feeling at any given moment. And I felt like, much like his soundtrack for Halloween, like it really helps to kind of amplify the suspense and the tension and the uncertainty that you're kind of already feeling. Yeah, Ennio sounded maybe a little miffed about how this went down, but um, I agree. Like John Carpenter has really great film music, even stuff that wasn't actually used in films, but he has albums that are film music-like um, that are really good music to write to or something. So yeah, he's a, I mean, Halloween theme is one of the most iconic pieces of music of all time. I mean, he, he could have retired after that. Basically, he probably gets crazy royalties every year from that. Right. <laughs> A thing I appreciate about that is, you know, not just the fact that it's like catchy or whatever, but that he's actually got good taste in using it, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. because it's like it would be one thing if this like writer, director, auteur was like, yeah, I'm going to slather my own music across every square inch of my movie because fuck (laughs) you. But like he uses it in a really judicious way and he doesn't use it to try to paper over any gaps or any missing things that's that are all already there in the filmmaking. And I think that's pretty rare among directors and auteur kind of filmmakers. And it's a thing that I've really come to appreciate about John Carpenter. And I think, again, just in this movie, I think it does a really good job. Like I, to me that the theme from The Thing is now pretty iconic itself. Yeah, it can go awry, uh, Clint Eastwood. (laughs) But... (laughs) Oh my God, yes. (laughs) But yes, in this case, it definitely works. My last big thing is just um, I wanted to just talk about the themes of the movie that kind of came up because they are hard to define. You know, it's not like an easy movie to just sum up because there's so much going on and the thing can be so many things that like I think maybe one of the reasons it's so scary is that it can touch different fears in everyone. It, you know, there's so many different kinds of fear and different, like we were talking about, like there's very, very gross, horrific things, but there's also a lot of dread and distrust and things that are, you know, more intimate. For me, just a couple of things that came up is just like that feeling of when someone you think you know, they, they do something or, you know, your relationship changes in some way, uh, like a friend or a partner or a family member, and you like feel like you were crazy, like you never really knew them. And I, I think without the whole movie being about that, just like that feeling coming up of like not knowing mm-hmm 
possibly not knowing the people around you that you think you know really well is actually like really scary and touches on something that's actually real that you can experience. Yeah, Chris, exactly along the same kind of thematic lines that you're talking about. The night before I watched this, I learned that a grocery delivery service that I've been using to get groceries delivered here just had a coronavirus outbreak on its staff (laughs) and that they had made the staff continue to work after they'd been exposed. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if I might have potentially been exposed. So watching these characters this time and how deeply they were playing out the anxiety of not knowing whether or not they had been taken by the thing and not knowing whether or not the only people they are encountering were taken by the thing was relatable in a much more direct way <laughs> than it has been. Yeah, I, I, I mean, that came up for me too, is just like living right now um, with this disease that we know some things about, but we don't know everything about how it's transmitted or what like the longer term effects could be. And there's still a lot of confusion. And obviously, people are in a lot of disagreement about those facts. So yeah, I mean, just the feeling of like, am I safe in a grocery store? The feeling that nowhere being around other people right now is actually totally safe. Yeah, I mean, I think that might be one reason that this movie feels much stronger than it did to me before. And also what came up is just the feeling of, you know, you might meet someone nice out there who seems perfectly nice, you know, serving you in a restaurant, <laughs> passing you on the street. And then you realize that they, they have different views than you, that you find horrifying. <laughs> And then you're like, you are an alien, get out of here, and you run away. It, it, it does kind of have, we have the sense that, I guess, whatever side you're on, like, the other half has been infected by aliens. So, there's that. We're, I think we're, we're in the midst of a thing takeover, is, is what I'm saying. <laughs> we picked a very relevant movie to discuss. Honestly, I had a suspicion these would both be very seasonally appropriate movies, but wow, did we ever pick... Uh, perfect movies to match an incredibly dark and isolated winter season. Yeah, it's funny. Like, it, like I knew this was horrifying, so I was like, oh, that's, you know, funny to do for, like, a counter-Christmas mm-hmm. podcast. But, yeah, I didn't think specifically, you know, about the themes that would come up. But I definitely do feel like I, I watched a documentary about this year, so... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And to our listeners out there, if you haven't seen The Thing yet, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's such a good watch. Unless you have a dog. (laughs) No, no, watch it with your dog. Don't make me scared of my dog. (laughs) Just to briefly mention, uh, The Thing was remade in 2011, sort of as a prequel, but also a remake. And it irritates me because John Carpenter films keep getting remade with the same title, (laughs) but they're also like a sequel or a prequel. It's very confusing. Just say that it's the thing too, or, you know, whatever. Don't don't just call it the thing again. It's very irritating. Oh, that is confusing. More things. <laughs> that happened with Halloween too, and I refuse to acknowledge that film. And that's all the things we have time for on this episode of When We Were Young. On our next episode, we'll be covering the 1986 David Cronenberg body horror classic, The Fly. Help us! Help us! Yes, we are continuing <laughs> our mission to ruin your holidays by thoroughly sicking you out. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. Subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. And we can also be found on Google Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcast fixed. Follow us on all the socials, especially on Facebook at facebook.com slash show, where we share fun posts around all our topics and where you can suggest future episodes of the show. I've been Seth or have I? I'm Becky. And I'm a real light sleeper child. <laughs> that was my best Kurt Russell. Oh. Mm-hmm. You should have been wearing a beard. That would have helped. I am wearing his lovely hat. <laughs> I loved his hat. <laughs> and now, folks, it's time to say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night.